You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. We're in the middle of a sermon series. I think we're actually right dead smack in the middle of this sermon series entitled Sinners and Saints, in which we are walking through the book of Romans. And um, today's sermon is entitled Justified in Christ. And it continues down this path of Paul's grand argument, which can really be sort of simply stated. So I'm just going to kind of give us four quick phrases that will catch us up on all four chapters if you haven't been here. And it's essentially these four things. It says, we are great sinners, helpless and hopeless. That's what, what 118 really all the way through 3 is telling us. The second thing that it tells us is that God is a great God. He is one God and that he is righteous and faithful. The third thing that it tells us is that all of us are debtors, that there's, there's none of us that can escape from underneath the fact that we are unrighteous and that God is righteous. And then the fourth thing is that he is due everything and yet he paid what we owed. And so that's kind of the, the thesis statement of that, that first three, four chapters of Romans, and that's where we arrive today. And over the past couple of weeks, really, we've kind of discussed this idea, um, used this word justification. And we've learned a couple of things. We've learned that we are justified by God through Jesus as a free gift. And last week, we talked about this idea that we actually lay hold of that gift simply through faith. And so God has provided something for us, and there's nothing that we can do to, to obtain it, to secure that for us, other than place our faith, place our trust in the fact that it's already been provided for us. And so today, what we're going to do, and what Paul is really going to do for us, is further explain how is it that Jesus has justified the believer, and what are its inevitable results, right? So it doesn't matter what truth you believe— this is how it should work. If you come to learn a truth, if you come to see something uh, be true, it inevitably leads to, to a consequence. Like your, your actions probably change, right? So like if you learn about gravity, you're not going to just walk off the roof of this building. Gravity is informing your decision making at that point. And so in the same way, um, Paul is going to tell us, hey, here, here is what Jesus has done, and this is what it means in the life of the believer. This is, this is what someone who enjoys the justification of God, the free gift of grace through Christ Jesus, this, this is the tangible result in the life of the believer. Um, and so in a sense, it is a prosperity gospel, but in a whole different way, um, <laughs> a redeemed way. Um, and so here we go. The first point, we're going to talk about peace and hope. And if you uh, are taking notes, uh, I generally just do three points, and we just kind of walk through the scripture here. Now, this is a huge portion of text, so bear with me. Um, we're going to try, try to keep it concise as usual. Uh, Romans 5, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, anytime you see a therefore in scripture, it means, okay, so because of everything that I've just said, Here's what's happened. So because we have been justified by faith, we have secured peace with God. And here's the thing. There's two elements to this peace. And again, we're going to kind of blow through these, but there's two elements to this peace. So we have peace with God in the sense that um, we read in chapters 1 through 3 that we were hopelessly removed from God. That there was nothing that we could do to sort of close that chasm, that gap between us and him. We couldn't stand in his presence. He's perfect and holy and just. And our presence before him 
would require a just judgment, meaning we would be sentenced to or sent away from his very presence. And so we have peace from God with God in this justification, meaning um, that we actually enjoy now a new, a right relationship with God, that we've been restored to what we were originally intended to enjoy, which was the fullness of his presence. That, that we see really in, in the garden even as, as Adam walked with God through the garden. But this peace is not exclusively an external state, meaning that we don't just experience peace in the sense of this relationship with God, although that is there and that is a benefit. We also experience peace on an internal level in that all of our angst, all of our suffering, all of those moments where we just can't maybe quantify what, what life is even all about, all of our anxiety about our problems, about our, about, about our issues, about maybe even our state with God, are laid to rest by this justification provided by faith. So we not only experience peace with God, but we experience peace in the sense that, uh, of a feeling, of an, of an emotion, of a, of a standing because of what Christ has done, because of this justification. And so we experience peace with God, but we also experience hope. And verses 2 through 5 say this, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so here's the thing. We've been given a hope that does not put us to shame. We have an expectation and a desire. That's what hope is, right? When you hope for something, you're like, I, I think that that's going to happen. I believe that's going to happen. I want that to happen. And there are moments when, in all of our lives, probably, hope has put us to shame. We're like, yeah, I, I hope that that's going to... You turn in that test, and you're like, I hope this works out, because I know I didn't study enough. And believe it or not, you know, you get the test back, and it's not as good as you had hoped for. Um, I had a few of those, just being honest. But... Um, but that hope put us to shame. We hoped in maybe our, our talents, our abilities to kind of carry us through that, that instance, that moment of testing, and we failed, and our hope put us to shame. And yet, what Paul is telling us is that this hope that we have in Christ, this hope that we have in the justification provided by Jesus that we obtain through faith, that that is a hope that will not fail us, that will not put us to shame. We have a trust that will be rewarded with faithfulness because God is true. That's what Romans 3 tells us, right? It says, let God be true, although everyone were a liar. Does our faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Absolutely not. And Paul continues that line of thinking here. And so here's the thing, we have peace, and we have hope, and we have justification, but why is it that we have those things? What is it that has secured those things for us? He's going to explain that for us in verses 6 through 10, and it says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so here's the thing. There's, there's, there's three things that, that essentially God provides that ensures that our hope is not put to shame and that our peace is a real, true, abiding, lasting, eternal peace. And the first thing that God provides is love. Right? It says in verse 8 that he shows his love for us in this. The Bible... Um, tells us, really all throughout, all throughout the text, various different texts, um, that the proof of God's amazing love is the gift of his only son. You read that in John 3.16. The Bible tells us also that the cross actually defines what the scripture means when it says love. And so here's the thing. We have to kind of remove ourselves to some degree from our cultural understanding of love as a feeling or as an emotion or as something that is plainly experiential. It tells us by this example, by the example of Jesus, that love is actually the voluntary placing of the welfare of others ahead of one's own. It is action, not just sentiment. Love is the mightiest force in the world, and it is the ethical goal of all of human existence. The Bible tells us that God is love, and that that determines the goal towards which this redemptive history moves. This is what spurs God into action. This is what moves him towards us, that he is a being of love, and he has provided that for us in his son. The second thing that God provides to ensure that our hope is not put to shame is reconciliation. And you read that, um, <laughs> you read that in verse 10 where it says, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So again, um, how do we have peace with God? Because there's a reconciliation that has taken place. Meaning that what was lost, what was damaged at the fall, what, was, what we were devoid of has now been credited to us and we receive a reconciled, a restored relationship with God that establishes peace. Ephesians tells us that, that we were by nature children of wrath, that God looked upon us and, and had wrath. And yet, because of what Jesus has done, we are reconciled into right relationship with him. That provides peace, not only with God, but peace inside of us, knowing that we've been restored to what we were originally built, made, created to enjoy. And the, the third thing that he provides is he provides life, right? And he's going to go on about that a little bit more later in the text. But here's the thing, what we have to understand. We were, we were never meant for death. And that's why it feels so strange. And that's why no matter how many, how, however old you think the earth is, however many people you think have walked on the earth, however many people you think have died, the fact of the matter is that we are still surprised when it happens, Right? It's never the right time. It's always too soon. It's because we were never meant for it. And a way in which our hope does not put us to shame is that 
We can hope in the life that is to come, the eternity that we were always meant for, that we are reconciled to God, and that in that, we are restored not only to fellowship with God, but to eternal fellowship with God. That's what we were created for. That's that's what we long for. That's where these, these hopes are fulfilled in what Christ has done. And so here's the thing. We have been provided peace, and we have been provided hope by the free gift of justification given to us by the work of Jesus. So what does that mean for us? Right? So that's all kind of up here, like lofty truth, maybe a little theological in terms of how do we, how do we obtain peace with God? How do we obtain uh, the, this grace, this, this hope? Paul's going to get real practical with us in terms of what it looks like to be someone who actually believes in what the Bible says. Romans 5.2 um, is, is kind of where we'll start. But essentially, this next point is called a people who rejoice. A people who rejoice. Romans 5.2 says, Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So here's the thing. There's three things that we, um, as believers, just in this text, that, that we are sort of called to rejoice in, that, that Paul says, look, if you believe that you've been justified by faith as a free gift, then this is, this is what that means for you. These are the things that you rejoice in. And the first thing that we rejoice in is the hope of the glory of God. And here's what's, here's what's odd about that. It, it was just a short couple of weeks ago that we were reading in Romans chapter 3, and it said what? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the, the glory of God that was meant for us, we couldn't attain, we couldn't obtain. And yet, we can rejoice in the fact because of this justification, because of this peace, hope, and grace that we've been afforded, that we can actually obtain the glory of God. That through the rich provision offered by God at the cross, we can move towards the goal that he always had in mind in creation. God's plan that, that we should reflect his glory is now being realized in the lives of obedient believers. That as Ephesians 2 chapter 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for us that we should walk in them. So here's the thing, we can rejoice in the fact that although, yes, we still fail, and although, yes, we, we still struggle, that we actually obtain some ability to, to live up to what God has called us to do, to live into, press into the identity that he has given us. The glory of God now dwells in us through Jesus by the power of the Spirit, and although we still struggle with the power and the presence of sin, one day they will be removed from us. And we, were, we will have our hope fulfilled. So we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope that we can actually do something that pleases God. Not out of our own abilities, but because Jesus has provided for us righteousness. And he's provided for us good works to complete. It's all from him. The second thing that we rejoice in is in our sufferings. And verse 3 through 4 says this. Not only that. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance, 
produces hope. See, the joy of the believer is not just something that we hope to experience in the future that is coming sometime down the road. Like, I, you know, I'm going to ob- obtain that at some point. No, no the, the joy of the believer is a present reality, even in times of trials and distress. Our joy is not a stoic determination to make the best out of a bad situation. Christian suffering is a source of joy because its purpose is to build character. Its purpose is to propel us into what? Into the glory of God. That in all things, and Paul's going to explain this a lot later, so I don't want to rob Romans chapter 8 of its power, but, but that in all things, for the believer, God is working those things together for your good. That he is faithful to complete the good work that he began in you. So it's not just a, Okay, I'm tired of that project. Like, have you ever half finished a puzzle? You know, that's, it's just annoying. You're like, I'm not, I'm not even going to get into that anymore. You just kind of throw it away. And you're like, yeah, I did it, sure. Like, God doesn't do that. Like, that God's going to put every single puzzle piece in its place. He's going to complete the good work that he has begun in you. That's a promise. And if we've learned anything from Romans chapters 1 all the way through 4, it's that God is faithful to what he promises to do. And so here's the thing. Our confidence in God's ability and willingness to bring us through difficult times leads us to an ever brighter hope for that which lies beyond. Hope is not just a superficial optimism, but it's the confident assurance of that which will surely come to pass. And so here's the thing, guys, and I'm, I'm, I'm really speaking to myself here too, but the, the idea of, of sort of a, the Christians being labeled as a group of just like whiners and complainers is just ridiculous. Like the things that, the things that we consider um, sort of worth our, our emotion of like despair over. Like, we don't have coffee here, you know? So I'm sure there's been Christians that have come and visited and been like, they don't have coffee, I'm out. This place sucks. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's just, but, and, and that's, a silly, that's silly and it's a joke, but honestly, if you think about the things in your life that you look at and you say, man, I can't believe this would happen to me. I don't deserve this. This shouldn't happen to me. That's ridiculous. You have the the one thing that matters in all of life, the one thing that lasts beyond the day of your death, and that is the hope of the glory of God that is reconciliation with God the Father through the Son applied to you by the power of the Spirit. What are we complaining about? Because in in all of those things, even in the difficult times, we can know with confidence, we have a hope that doesn't put us to shame in the fact that God is going to bring us before his throne, fully justified, fully righteous, as a gift of his grace. Brothers and sisters, that is all you need. You lose your job, you lose your house, you lose your spouse, you lose money, anything that could possibly be taken away from you here, none of that will touch this. It is, it is a hope that will not put you to shame. Rejoice in your sufferings. 
The third thing that we rejoice in is in God himself. Romans 5.11 says this, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, here's the thing. We can now rejoice in God because he counts us as righteous. What once placed us under his judgment has now been replaced with, what, with something that places us under his love and care. So here's the thing. If you're, if you're not a believer in the room, or maybe if you've struggled with skepticism, which, which I have personally, um, the idea of a single, holy, just, worthy God is typically the reason that people don't want there to be a God at all. There's a part of all of us that knows this is true, that we can't possibly satisfy this God, that if there is a God, and that if he is holy, and if he is just, then I am absolutely in his condemnation. Because I don't know about you, but if you've ever been honest with yourself, when I look at what I've done, I condemn myself. Like, like, and I'm no perfect judge here. But I look at the things that I've done and I feel shame. I don't need a, I don't need a God to tell me that. But now you tell me there, that, there, that there is a God and that he is holy and he is just and that he does demand perfection from me and that I can't supply that. I don't want that to be true. This fear is what drives us to unbelief, what drives us to skepticism and to disdain of even the idea of God. However, here's the thing. Um, that, can be, that, that can be sort of changed for the good when you, when you understand that, that ultimately following Jesus is not, is not simply a moral code that you have to live up to. Because if that were the case, all of us in here might as well just go home now. There, we, we wouldn't be able to do it. But the entire message of Christianity, the entire message of the Bible, the entire meaning in following Jesus is that he has done what we could not do for us. And so this God that is holy, that is just, that is the one and only, that is the ruler over all creation, that he can look at you as an adopted son or daughter. Why? Because of something you've done? No. Because his son lived the perfect life you should have lived, died the death that you should have died, and rose in victory over both of those things. And he credits his account to you. So we can rejoice in God. We can actually, you don't have to cower anymore. You don't have to wonder, am I, am I in God's favor? Does he like me? Does he not like me? Have I done enough this week? Have I prayed enough? Have I given enough money, whatever it is, none of those things are ultimate. Absolutely, they're signs. Like, like we're going to talk about how, how faith, you know, spurs forward works. But here's the thing. We, we work from a salvation, not for it. And so, in Christ, we can rejoice in the truth of a single, holy, just, worthy God because we can satisfy him, not, not because of anything we've done, but because we proclaim the name and fame of his son. We can live the way he would desire us to live by the power of the Spirit. It's no longer a belief that condemns us. Rather, it's a belief that upholds us, that sustains us. And so, uh, naturally, this is kind of where the, the break would be in, in sort of most sermon series, but 
The next point that we're going to talk about is this idea of, of being taken from death to life. And in the, in the following, um, essentially, uh, nine verses or so, um, Paul is going to, to really explain for us what, how we were sort of dead um, by nature, but that through the gift of God, we've been given life. And so I'm just going to take a small portion of that. If you have further questions sort of on the, the, the texts um, from 12 to 17, feel free to ask me, shoot me an email. I would love to, to answer any questions that I, that I can humbly. Um, but we're going to go to verse 18, and it says this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's obedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the thing. A couple of quick points from this. Um, sin, sin's inevitable consequence is death. As, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Sin's inevitable consequence is death. Its reign is tyrannical and it's destructive. Righteousness's consequence is life. Its reign is gracious and it is good. And so here's some, some nuances for us to just sort of take away from this particular portion of the passage. Number one, one trespass led to condemnation of all men. So here's the thing. Again, he is, he is going back to the same thesis that he was presenting in, in chapters one through three, that, that none of us escape this, this judgment. That, that none of us escape the fact that we were born sinners. Like, so, so this whole idea of like, hey, we're born basically good, and then the world just kind of like, just pushes us down, man. It's, that's not the case. That we were born, we, we are descendants of Adam, that, we, that, that upon Adam's fall, that all of it was marred. That as descendants of him, that's what, that's what lives inside of us. That's who we are children of wrath in direct opposition to God. That one trespass led to condemnation for all of us. Our sin nature is inescapable on our own. The good news, one act of righteousness. One act of righteousness. So here's the thing. Um, if you... <laughs> There's, there's all kinds of things that you could kind of move into in terms of maybe a more universalistic view uh, of God. So, so there's kind of the, the, the whole elephant thing where it's like everybody's got their hand on one part of the elephant, but it's really just a big elephant. It's the same elephant, you know, that kind of argument thing. Um, it, everyone's like, I have no idea what just happened. <laughs> You're going to go home and watch Dumbo now. Um, but, um, but so this idea that essentially... It's, we're all climbing the same mountain. There's just different paths to the top. Anybody heard that before? Yeah, okay, cool, awesome. I'm not, not completely lost here. Um, well, here's what, here's what Romans 5 tells us. No, there's, 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 there's one act of righteousness that leads to justification. One, one act. And so there is no other way. Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the promise of God to reconcile a people unto himself. It's only by his righteous life, death, and resurrection that we find peace, hope, access, and grace before God. So there's the thing, guys, Christians, it, it, 
it's definitely hard when when the Bible tells us to believe something that is that is not the most readily acceptable in our culture. Can we hold on to that with humility? Rather than retreat from the cultural conversation, rather than just kind of pull back and say, you know what, I'm, not, I'm just not going to talk about that. No, man, there's one act of righteousness. It's through Jesus, and, and I want everyone to know about it. And yeah, it's an exclusive truth, right? Meaning that there's, so there's, there's one way, there's one, one God, there's one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus, but here's the thing, the, the invitation is inclusive, right? So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for who? For all men. Everyone who's going to be justified, everyone who's going to stand before God with right standing is going to be someone who calls Jesus as Savior. That's it. Ain't nobody else getting in on anything else. Second thing, or third thing, really, with or without the law, um, it says this. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, previously, in sort of that verse, uh, verse section 12 through um, 17, Paul explains this a little bit better when he, he kind of talks about how um, although the sin came, I'm sorry, although the law came after Adam, right? So there's, there's Adam, then you have kind of sort of this long human history, and then there's the law given to Moses, Right? And so what Paul essentially explains is that, look, just because you guys didn't have the law before that doesn't mean that you weren't guilty. He says, look, I gave the law, and that showed you, like on paper, it became quantifiable, it became obvious, it became readily apparent. But all of us, with or without the law, whether we plead ignorance or whether we plead our own morality or our own possession of the law, that neither of those things get us in. And here's, here's what he means. I, I want us to take a moment and talk about this phrase where he says that law increased trespass. Law increased trespass in two ways. Number one, it made us aware of the existence of the trespass. And two, it propelled us to further trespasses because of our inherent rebellious nature. And here's what I mean by that. So um, number one, God gives the law, right? So now... Nobody's, nobody's got an excuse. Like, it's written down. It's right there. Don't kill someone. Those kinds of things, right? And so it made us aware of the existence of the trespass. But then here's, here's what Paul means by it increased the trespass. Typically, when there's a rule, what's the first thing you want to do? Break it. You want to break the rule. So it's like, hey, hey, don't. Mom's like, don't, don't touch the stove. And you're like, well... Yeah, I'm just, just going to, and, it, and it's not, it never ends well, right? Um, but that's, that's essentially the same thing, that, that God gives the law, and in us, we are by nature, again, in rebellion, in opposition to God, and so it drives us to say, you know what, not only, not only do I not care, but I'm going to go in the complete opposite direction. But there's also God's faithfulness, Right? And it says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. The grace of Jesus covers our sin and gives us power to live in victory over it. So here's the thing. Um, a lot of times uh, I feel like in, in the church we try to kind of um, measure ourselves by an imperfect standard. 
meaning by one another. So we look around and we say, okay, well, that guy does this, um, and this guy does this, and so I'm kind of somewhere there in the middle, so, you know, I probably get in on on someone's coattails maybe, you know, (laughs) like, um, but but that's how we measure ourselves, and so what we do is we sort of start to rank sin, right? Sort of like, okay, like murder, really bad. White lie, eh, not so bad. And you can just kind of build your little ranking out from there. But here's the thing. No matter what you think about it, number one, the Bible would tell us that, that all sin, any sin, is all the same in that it is a heart condition, it, in that it is a failure to acknowledge God for who he says he is. But even if you ranked it, God's grace is abundant, that God's grace overcomes that sin, that no matter how heinous, no matter how dark you feel, no matter how, um, how many horrible things you may have seen a person or even yourself do, that the grace of God abounds all the more. And this is why coming before God sort of in uh, maybe in trepidation or fear, um, man, like he... He's, he's overcome all of it for you. And Matthew tells us that, that he's actually gentle and lowly in heart, that he humbled himself, took upon himself flesh on your behalf in order to do what? To provide for you a, a means to come before the throne of grace. So what Hebrews tells us, that because we have an empathetic high priest, because of the good work of Jesus, we can come before the throne of God and receive grace and mercy in our time of need. So here's the thing. We need to wrap this up. Um, We are justified by faith, that faith being placed in the perfect work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. So like I always do, I want to talk to two people in the room. Number one, if you're a believer, if you're a believer, your justification provides you hope in God and peace with God. You also have access and confidence that in all things he is for you, producing in you the very glory of God himself. And so rejoice in all things. Live as though this is true. Our gratitude and our celebration should know no bounds. Live into your new provided identity. Guys, this is, this is why we gather together on Sundays to celebrate the hope of the glory of God. That's why we get together in neighborhood parishes to remind ourselves of the hope of the glory of God that is in us, that we get to journey together as family to the ultimate end of seeing our hopes realized finally and fully in Christ Jesus. Blessed assurance. If you're not a believer in the room... Um, uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know where you're at, but um, most likely, and I could be wrong, and you're welcome to tell me that. That's fine. Um, like I said, I want to be humble here. But your only hope right now is yourself. And if you're honest, that should be a little scary. You can rest in the hope and peace of God afforded to you in Christ Jesus. You can exchange your imperfection for his perfection. You can be ushered into the kingdom of righteousness and out of the kingdom of sin. You can have life as opposed to death, and it comes only by the blood of Christ. And it's a free gift. That's the the beauty of all of it. And so if you're wondering, again, why are we here? This is why. 
At Sojourn, we say this all the time, and we're going to keep saying it, but here at Sojourn, we want to be known not for our morality, but for our message. It's about, it's about Him. It's not about something that we do. And so if you come week after week just to maybe try to satisfy God or appease Him in some, in some weird way, um, He doesn't care about that. He wants you to come to him, and he wants you to take from that free gift. It's there. It's available for you. And in receiving that gift, there is grace, hope, peace, life. That's why we do all that we do. That's why I get up in the morning. That's why this church exists. That's why, hopefully, all of the churches in Houston exist, is because of that message, because of that truth. It is inseparable from us, from who we are. In fact, it defines us.